Chemistry. Hello and welcome to Brought to You by Chemistry. If you're new to this, you're probably wondering what's brought to you by chemistry. Complicated reactions? Complicated exams? Complicated relationships that you still find yourself thinking about to this day? Well, yes, but it's also a podcast from the Royal Society of Chemistry, bringing you discussions and interviews with experts to talk about challenging global issues and how science, especially chemistry, can help solve them. My name is Dr. Alex Lathbridge, and in this series, we're exploring the subject of air quality, from health and the environment to policy and geopolitics. Today, we're going to kick things off by asking the very simple question, what is air quality? And to help answer that, we have two experts. So, difficult questions first. Could I please get you to introduce yourself? Going to start with you, Neil. Uh, hello, I, I am uh, Neil Donahue. I am a actually the Lord University Professor of Chemistry at Carnegie Mellon University, um, which actually has to do with the Thomas Lord Corporation and nothing to do with uh, with nobility, uh, which I am certainly not, um, or religion. Um, but I am an atmospheric chemist at uh, Carnegie Mellon University. Okay, solid start. And guest number two. Hello, I'm Dr. Suzanne Bartington and I'm a clinical associate professor in environmental health at the Institute of Applied Health Research, University of Birmingham. I'm also one of the UK clean air champions working across the UK to translate our air quality evidence into action. I know the UK RI are very happy with you right now. You, you reeled that off really nice, real clean. They're like, you better say it. You better say that. Advertising. Say it. <laughs> Speaking of which, I should also say that I am the uh, the founding editor in chief of the Royal Society of Chemistry Journal Environmental Science Atmospheres, uh, which has been um, now we are in our third year of uh, of publishing, and we're we're properly listed with an impact factor and all of the things that a journal wants to have. So, because this season we are talking about air pollution, I'm going to start with the most pressing question. Um, this is for Neil primarily. What What is air pollution? What do we mean when we say the words air pollution? Air that's icky. Um, but uh, so, so specifically, things in the air that cause harm. Uh, so pollution is is something that is that is a causes a detriment. And usually, we mean things that people put there. Um, so, uh, in general, pollution is a is a is a disturbance of the natural state. Uh, of air or water or soil, uh, generally caused by human beings, uh, and it's a disturbance that causes um, some form of harm. That might be harm as in killing people, it might be harm as in um, being, shall we say, unpleasant, it might be harm as in changing global climate. There are different ways we can classify it, but maybe the easiest broad classification would be uh, pollutants that directly affect human health uh, versus pollutants that affect the the environment in some way that then turns around either just damages the just damages the environment or then causes uh, knock-on effects that affect people um, and then there's there's um, there's well the, the easiest example is visibility um, reducing visibility by itself is it, visibility isn't isn't a cause of 
or low visibility isn't directly a cause of harm unless you're trying to land an aircraft or something like that. But it's a I, I'm avoiding using the term annoyance, but I'll use it anyway. Um, it, it it degrades the, uh, the, the the natural environment. So those those direct harm um, harm to the environment and then harm to uh, to to the, the quality of the environment, let's say. And then even direct harm, if you want to get into the weeds, there's some things that are that are um, directly toxic. Um, so they cause acute uh, effects. Um, think chemical warfare, right? Things that, that will kill you. You breathe them in and you die, um, or you ingest them and you die. Uh, and then there are other uh, pollutants that cause harm that are more chronic. So exposure to them increases your systemic inflammation, as an example. Um, and so you won't die uh, because of bad air quality in that case, but you will cause sort of aggregate harm. Um, and that is not at all unlike smoking, for an example, where typically someone doesn't take a puff from a cigarette and fall over dead. Uh, but, but cumulatively, the effects of smoking can in, increase the risk of cancer and increase the risk of cardiovascular uh, disease. All right. So with that in mind, like Suzanne, what would you say some of the impacts of air pollution are and sort of who does it really affect? Poor air quality or air pollutants affect all of us ultimately but they affect some people more than others so we know that there are harms from breathing these pollutants that happen right from before birth so for those uh, who are present and their mother inhales particulates for example during pregnancy all the way through childhood adolescent later life and into old age we know that there are some specific conditions that are causally associated with specific pollutants. And we mainly think about particles and nitrogen dioxide in terms of health impacts. But those are conditions that are very widespread. So coronary heart disease, asthma, lung cancer, stroke, those are causally associated. Your risk will be higher of having those diseases if you live in a more polluted area or if you have higher exposure to poor air quality. There are other conditions where there is evidence to suggest that pollution certainly plays a role either in increasing severity or the likelihood of developing that condition. And that range of conditions is much wider. So we're thinking about low birth weight, um, prematurity, limitations on lung capacity development, um, metabolic disorders such as diabetes and into later life, really important area of research is on cognitive decline and the risk of dementia. So the list is growing, but ultimately we know that air, poor air quality affects every organ in the body and hence there is a very wide range of these health impacts associated with it. So like with that, I understand like with, you know, like it's been said, like, you know, if you smoke cigarettes, you know, there's a direct link between cigarettes and lung cancer. But when it comes to all of these things, you know, such as like cognitive decline, low birth weight, you know, these are things necessarily that you wouldn't expect. Oh, this is due to air quality being poor, air pollution. So how how do we get from, how do we understand that? 
Yeah, so the reason we know these links and we, we understand them is because of epidemiology. And that is the discipline of looking at these changes that happen at a population level. So that was exactly how the link between smoking and lung cancer was discovered by looking at the risk of cancer developing in a whole group of smokers and non-smokers. And we need those studies to happen over a long period of time because as Neil mentioned, there are both those short-term harms, but there are also those long-term ones of which cancer is an example. Dementia is another that take a long time to manifest. So we need those large scale studies. And, and broadly speaking, they fall into two types. Cohort studies, where we follow a population up over time, we're able to know information about those individuals and what they do, where they live, um, for example, do they smoke or not smoke? And then also we use large routine data sets. So these data sets that are gathered, such as census data, um, hospital statistics, and we're able to then undertake comparisons both between and within areas, linking those to air quality data and understanding what the difference is in risk there. My under, there's two things, maybe three things that that I think the audience should know. One is that the harm here is enormous. So we, we often focus on fine particles and we probably will uh, in this conversation for a very good reason, which is our best estimate right now is, is fine particles lead to uh, 7 million excess deaths per year around the world. Uh, it's not an, a small thing here. Uh, it's the fourth leading cause of premature uh, excess mortality, premature mortality around the globe. Um, and so it's it's enormously consequential. Uh, even in places where there have been great improvements in air quality, and I live in one, um, it's still a major cause of, of death. And in the developing world, it's a really, really big deal. So that's one issue. The second one is uh, you asked about the link. You know, how does it, how, how can breathing in a particle uh, increase your risk of dementia. A lot of these connect through um, systemic inflammation, is my understanding. Uh, and so the, the particles, the, the, again, focusing on particles, the, the thing that's unpleasantly magical about fine particles is they're little enough that, that they don't, um, if, if I have a little terrier who's very quick, and if, the, if she's running away from a big dog, um, she'll turn quickly and the big dog will run into the fence, right? Um, because she can, she can move and part, little particles are the same way. Uh, so so they, they actually mostly flow with air as we breathe in. Uh, whereas large particles, uh, our upper respiratory tract is actually designed to filter them out. So if, you, if you're going through sand or even pollen, um, even though it's amazingly unpleasant, especially if you have allergies to breathe in a lot of that, if you breathe through your nose, your nose is actually doing its job and it's catching those particles so they don't get down into your lungs with the little particles. And these are particles smaller than a, a, than a couple of micrometers in diameter. So they're very, very small. They travel with that air and they deposit way down in the, in the lung sacs and the alveoli. Um, and with that deposition, they kind of overwhelm the local capacity of the lungs to respond and the and what the the, the the sort of break glass when in danger system in the body is to then fire up um, a systemic inflammatory response cytokine levels go up uh, and then all kinds of chronic conditions get worse 
And this means two things. One, that's how it does. So that, then your risk of dementia goes up, your risk of heart attack goes, cardiopulmonary effects, on and on and on and on and on and on. Get, get worsened by that. That's one thing. The other thing that's enormously important is it depends on your, on your background state. So, so then this is where, where environmental justice becomes a huge issue. So if you already are stressed, if you already have exposure to other causes of systemic inflammation and you pile on with additional pollution, it gets that much worse. I mean, absolutely. So we know that certain groups are more susceptible and vulnerable to air pollution. Others, I already mentioned pregnant women. The developing fetus obviously is undergoing a period of growth and maturation. And similarly, young children, when their organs are growing, that limitation on lung capacity, I mentioned that's because it's that growth phase. And we know that there's those susceptible periods within the life course as a whole that are particularly important. I think I'd add that, yes, the, 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 the fine, so we talk about particles by their diameter, so PM 2.5, 2.5 micrometers in diameter, those fine particles are able to penetrate through the alveoli, but they can also go directly up through the nose to the olfactory epithelium to the brain. So there's a very direct route to exposure and alongside some of those inflammatory impacts that, that Neil explained, they also actually make the blood stickier. So when we talk about this increase in risk of, of stroke, of thrombotic events, of these clots essentially, that's because of the way in which they interact and make our, our blood more likely to clot. And that can happen over a long period of time as well. So there are those susceptibility elements that need to be taken into account. People already with restricted lung function, for example, chronic obstructive pulmonary disease, their lung architecture is already vulnerable to air pollution impacts. And they're going to be amongst those who are most likely to experience premature death. So that's what we look at in terms of statistics. It's the risk of premature death and of these specific health conditions as well. For you then, what does healthy air actually look like? You know, because if you have dirty water, you know what that looks like. You know, when you have like landfills that are filled with waste, like plastics and that, you know what that looks like. But with air, a apart from like air that is visibly like, you know, dirty you know you can see with your eyes what does healthy air actually look like air is invisible help me here it, it is and this is one of the challenges we have with communicating the risks of poor air quality it's not always invisible so if we go back and think about the smogs for example in, in the uk our industrialized cities particularly look at london in the 1950s we had really visible episodes of smog and similarly we do i know there's a really striking image of the Indian cricket team when they came out wearing masks in, in Delhi, for example, we've still got these very intense smog events, let alone the most recent wildfire events that have really put that into the public spotlight. So those particles, larger particles, absolutely you get this, this visible impacts in air quality and reductions in visibility that, that Neil mentioned as well. Also some of our gaseous pollutants, so if you think about the nitrogen dioxide, you might see this brown haze across the cityscape, um, particularly if, if you're looking at a very industrialised or heavy traffic city. So you, there are visible elements, but broadly speaking, when we talk about air quality, we are talking about the very, very fine, particularly harmful particles, and, and they are invisible to the naked eye. 
Now, I should say as well that, that the concept of healthy air is, is debated. So there are what we call um, particles in the air that have biological origin as well. Um, there are viral, fungal, bacterial particles as well. And some of those are actually important for our, ourselves, for our immune system, for immune priming. So this concept of, of healthy air is, is a topic of discussion in the scientific community, particularly when we're thinking about indoor settings as well. But ultimately what we do know is that any level of fine particulates is, is harmful to health. And the, we now know the lowest threshold at which health harms can be detected in those large scale epidemiological studies that I mentioned. And that scientific knowledge and that advance in our knowledge over the last 15 years led to the World Health Organization updating their recommendations for health-based guidelines for pollutants. They were much more stringent than previously were, and that was done in, in late 2021. So we now have a set of guidelines for key pollutants, which are health-based, which are very strict and which most 99% of people living in the world actually live in areas that exceed those health-based guidelines. So many are breathing what we would consider to be air that is polluted at a level that's harmful to health. Yeah, one challenge that uh, uh, Suzanne just alluded to is that basically as, as wherever we've looked, the, the, the effects that epidemiology, which, uh, which you mentioned before, detect on a statistical increase in the in negative outcomes and most notably people dying uh continues as 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 low as we can measure um and so there a lot of the recent epidemiology has has made use of canada uh, which when it's not on fire is actually a place where you often find very low um, levels of pollution uh, and so so some of those recent studies uh, added in epidemiology in, in Canada and found uh, increased risk of mortality down to uh, a let we measure, we weigh the stuff. So a, a, a level of five micrograms per cubic meter of air. Um, and there's, if you ask anybody in that field, there's no, nobody suspects that there's a magic level where it all goes away. Um, the only reason that the lowest uh, effect we see is at five is that's essentially the lowest level that anybody is exposed to. And we still see that, that the more exposure you, you, you get, the, 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 the greater the harm is. That does make a challenge for public policy because it's a lot of laws are written as if there's a, you know, essentially a dosage and below that it's healthy, above that it's not healthy. And that's actually not what the science says. It's, I'm oversimplifying it, but for the most part, the science says the higher the level of the pollution, the higher the level of, in this case, the fine particles, the more your, your risk will rise. You mentioned about the World Health Organization updating their guidelines um, recently in sort of 2021. Now, that's looking at, on a, I guess, on an international level. And I guess uh, that's important because air, as we all know, can't be contained by anything except for like bottles and boxes and all of that air travels and so that means air pollution travels i mean how does that actually happen how does air pollution spread from say you know birmingham to the rest of the country or to canada across to the usa how does that happen i'm going to start with you neil and then suzanne and i should have said in my introduction i'm actually a meteorologist so <laughs> this is in my wheelhouse wheelhouse um 
but air moves uh, is the simple answer. And just as I was talking about the uh, the, the little terrier and the fine particle, uh, the reason why when we breathe in that the, the the fine particles manage to to follow the air streams is that they are the, the the tiniest speck of dust that you can see slowly settling in in you know when the sun glints through the window is is the size of the moon compared to a lot of these fine particles and that's almost not an exact it is an exaggeration but it's not a huge exaggeration that those are huge by uh, by our standards so these things are so small that that the the rate at which they fall out of the atmosphere is basically negligible. Uh, so the only way they leave is, for the most part, is precipitation, is rain. Um, and so they're going to be carried until it rains. Um, and in a lot of places in the world, that can be a long time. On average, actually, it's about once a week uh, as, a, as a kind of a global average. And air travels a long, long way in a week. That's it. It's that simple. So Suzanne, is that something you see, like, you know, from a health perspective, how is air pollution, and I guess the effects of air pollution, how is that spreading? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's a good question. So, so as Neil said, we, we know, we, we're able to look at the sources of pollutants and where they come from. And that gives us insights into the proportion of the pollution that is local essentially versus what is coming from what we call transboundary or transnational sources. So for example, if we look in, in Birmingham, um, the area in which, which I work, we've got a very high level air quality super site, which is able to determine the source of pollution. And we know that roughly a third of particles are coming from outside that area of the city. The more localised pollutants, so for example, nitrogen dioxide, which is more associated strongly with local activity, so road traffic, industry, those we are actually able to see the health impacts of at a local level. And we can see, for example, higher rates of, of asthma, of severe asthma, particularly, as I said, associated with, with high levels of, of nitrogen dioxide. And that's quite typical in inner city areas where you've got that concentration. So what we need to think about from a health perspective is both the density of the population, how many people are living in that area, what the demography is. Um, so it will depend on whether you've got a slightly younger or older population in terms of the health impacts that you see from poor air quality, and also how those people are interacting with their environment. And we see some quite different patterns in different populations for that reason. If we look at lower middle income settings, for example, where biomass is a major source of domestic fuel, and people are spending a long time in close proximity cooking with wood, dung, straw, we see very high rates of particularly lung disease. And that, again, is associated with those very high particulate concentrations in close proximity. So we always talk about the need to reduce at source, to increase the, the distance between people and the source, and ultimately to protect people against exposure when we're thinking about reducing their risk but all of those factors are important when we're thinking about health at a population level yes there there are two things that one is even though i said particles and pollution in general can travel for a week and more it is diluted as it does so so it's always true that if you're close to the source you're going to have a higher more intense 
more concentrated exposure. Another thing, which is actually a major part of my own academic research, is that uh, one should not regard these particles as little marbles that are emitted from some source, or for that matter, most other pollutants that are emitted and then simply transported. There's a huge amount of chemistry going on uh, while this is happening. In, in fact, even waiting for exposure, so even saying what do people actually breathe and not just, just mapping the whole world, most of the molecules in most of the particles that most people breathe are a consequence of chemistry that happened in the atmosphere. Um, they're incredibly vibrant. And, uh, and actually, if you look at it uh, at the average over the planet, what I mean by most is more than 90%. Um, and so actually one of the, the things we don't really understand yet uh, for example, that Canadian smoke that got down to us in Pittsburgh and across the eastern seaboard of the United States, um, those molecules were, the, the, the smoke was very different by the time it got to us and we breathed it in from when uh, a, a firefighter might have been standing, you know, on the, on, the, on the flame front trying to fight that fire. We don't know how that changes the toxicity of that, of that smoke. We, we think it likely gets worse, but we don't know that. So air quality issues aren't just localized to the place that, say, these pollutants or these particles are emitted from. You know, nothing remains local. It goes national. It goes international. That's the nature of air. Air moves. So with that in mind, like, are there things then that that we can do at a national, international level to make things better or or, or just to understand the effects of air quality a bit more? Maybe Suzanne. Mm. I mean, it's a really interesting question. So we often argue that air quality, air quality should be addressed as a, as a global challenge, ultimately. Um, at present, the way in which uh, legislation is carved out is at a national, regional, subnational level. So we have the slightly um, challenging situation, for example, in the UK, where we've got local authorities with certain responsibilities around air quality management, but actually the pollution is coming from outside their area and they're only able to act um, on what they have some control, degree of control over. At the moment, there's a, a very hot debate raging in London about the ultra low emission zone, which is just one example of that because it's a policy over which the authority there actually has some jurisdiction and is able to implement. But if you actually look at where the pollution comes from, you're looking at a very different, broader range of sources. Okay. So then uh, I guess before we jump in on air quality, um, this is the point where you get to flex your muscles in a little bit. You get to flex your muscles a little bit because uh, what does being a UKRI clean air champion entail? This seems like something you should be sorting out. You know, the UK, UK Research Institute, you do clean, you're a champion of clean air. This is very, very Hercules, very, 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 I want, come on, what, what do you do? Sort it. <laughs> we, we champion the science. So, so UKRI is UK Research and Innovation, which is the consortium across our publicly funded research councils, which have come together to fund a whole set of studies around clean air, all the way from toxicology through to population studies, atmospheric scientific studies, etc. And that's a 42 million investment from ultimately the UK Research Councils. My role together with my colleagues, Stephen Holgate and Gary Fuller is to 
take the evidence that comes out of that programme and translate it in a way it can be used. So take it to national government, to local authorities, to industry, um, to the third sector and say, we have this knowledge, we have these tools, how can you use them to improve air quality? And that knowledge takes a whole different range of forms. So we've got those academic articles, of course, but we've also got things like toolkits, which enable you to assess and put some numbers to an air quality action. What will the benefit be for health? Um, interventions like better bus shelter designs that have been tested using computer modelling. How can they then be implemented into practice to protect people waiting at roadside? Um, working with government directly to say, actually, how can you better shape your emerging policies such that they'll deliver better clean air benefits? So that's just a flavour of, of, of our role. But we're really, we call ourselves the glue that holds the science and the activities together across the programme and makes it known to a wider audience. I really liked how proud you were of saying that you were the glue. And you were more proud of the fact that you're literally called a clean air champion. Like I feel as though if one of those were to go on a T-shirt, it would be the latter. It would be clean air champion, not we're the glue. Uh, I'll take that, that back as a suggestion to the team. What would you say some of the biggest research questions are that, you know, you'd like to be able to answer in sort of both of your respective fields? So with, um, I'll set aside climate, which is the, the, the climate related implications of a lot of, uh, of these are actually fairly significant and, and there's some significant research questions there. Uh, but on the um, uh, traditional pollutant, uh, i.e. breathing in things that cause people harm level, <clears throat> the, I've already alluded to a couple of them and they, and they relate to I mean, the chemical transformation. So uh, naturally, I, I focus a little bit on things that are of academic interest to me, uh, but, but as I said, with, with, the, with the Canadian smoke as an example, the, uh, our best understanding is that the, the oxidation chemistry that, that affects that uh, that the organic compounds that are comprise most of that smoke uh, is quite rapid. Um, and so there's a chemical question of understanding those chemical mechanisms, which are a mess. And they're, they're a lot of fun, stimulating fun academically to work on and try to think about. And they happen in multiple phases in the gas phase and the particles in aqueous droplets. Uh, so what we call multi-phase chemistry. Uh, and then um, kicking it directly over to Suzanne, is we uh, part of, I see part of my job is to uh, is to provide the scaffolding for colleagues who work in the health effects, which I don't, uh, to understand that's true because in many cases it is that the understanding isn't there. It's it's very easy to conceive of the particles as effectively coming from a source like the one on my background straight into people's lungs, um, and so to understand that that chemical transformation is taking place. Um, but then the vast majority of our of our policies regarding exposure to fine particles just relate to the total mass of fine particles. So PM 2.5 mass is the jargon uh, in, in, in the trade. Those, those World Health Organization guidelines are just the total mass of the particles. They are absolutely and agnostic as to the composition of those particles. We know that's wrong. <laughs> We know it matters what the particles are made of. It's not just common sense. There's plenty of scientific evidence for that. 
Uh, we also know, however, that it's not there's not one magic bullet. It's not just the nickel. It's not just some organic toxicant in the particles that that there's a that, that the aggregate concentration of that stuff matters. And we it, it's it's a it's a fairly complicated mixture of both chemical mixture, but then mixture of, of effects. And so getting clarity on that to me is is very important. Yeah, I mean, Neil has touched on the big holy grail for the, um, let's say the broadly speaking, the health side of, of air pollution, health research side is, is understanding which of the constituents, particularly when we look at particulate matter is a whole mix of solids and liquids in the air and actually being able to understand what are the specific health conditions that are associated with exposure to those different constituents of PM and how does that vary within between different people so different subpopulations for example by ethnic group we don't really understand a great deal yet why though we see higher risks in certain ethnicities that might be exposure related or it might be some other type of vulnerability. That's just one example. Um, the other really sort of focal area is, is ultrafine particles and understanding what the health impacts are. At the moment, we, we as I said, we have the WHO guidelines for PM 2.5, but we actually know it's probably those smaller, very fine particles of less than one micrometer that are responsible for many health harms. We don't really know that yet. And also these differences between particle number and particle mass in terms of what, what, is, the, what is the metric by which we should be assessing these risks. Another area which I think is relevant from a clinic, I say this as a former clinician, is being able to integrate air quality exposure into the assessment of clinical risk. So we had a really high profile case here of a girl called Ella Aduskisi Deborah who very sadly died from very severe brittle asthma and she was the first person in the world to have air pollution named um, on her death certificate as the cause of death. Now that was interesting in itself because no clinician had made the link between where she lived which was right in there of the legal levels of, of nitrogen dioxide pollution and her own asthma. So there's a whole area of work that needs to be done on how do we translate all of this air quality science into tools that can be used by clinicians at the bedside, just in the way that we do routinely for smoking. As, as doctors, we ask people, how long, have you, how long have you smoked for? And we do a calculation and we use that as part of the clinical risk assessment. That's not there yet for air pollution. And, and that's something we would like to see happen, translating that research into into action and clinical use so my question was you know on my phone i have an app that tells me what the air quality is in my area of areas that i'm going to because you know air perhaps unhealthy air is invisible even sometimes how important would you say tools like that are for like i guess giving people agency or allowing people to know about what's happening in the air that they're breathing I guess, Suzanne, this is more of a question for you. I'm just asking perhaps for myself, is it worth me anxiously looking at this thing on my phone? <laughs> it, it's a really interesting question because there are different levels in terms of data quality. And we know that there are lots of challenges with getting and communicating 
air quality data to members of the general public in a way in which they can understand it and make informed decisions. And there's a lot of research underway looking at how people respond to that. Some of which suggests that actually it could lead to actions which are worse for their health. So for example, we're looking at asthma patients or COVD patients um, who've got chronic lung disease. If you tell them that it's particularly polluted day, they might limit their activities or even not go to their hospital appointments, for example. So that is, that is one of the risks. The other risk we have from a public health perspective is that making that data available in a digital format will potentially widen health inequity. So it will help those who are able to access it, who, as you mentioned, have the agency to act upon it, but it won't in any way support those who are potentially the most vulnerable, but don't have access to digital technology, um, aren't able to make those decisions or have um, that degree of um, agency over their own behaviours and place they spend their time. So that's just the caveat there. Having said that, I think there's huge potential for people, for data to be available to, to people, but in the right format and in presented in such a way that it's it's useful, it's informative, and ultimately that it's accessible. And I would say that both for indoor and outdoor air quality. I think we're still a little bit away with a step of work to be done until we are able to do that. And in the UK, that's why at the moment, the daily air quality index is being looked at in terms of the way it's being used. Um, that's obviously a forecasting um, tool, which enables you to look at what the air quality will be like both on that day and the days ahead. So I still think there's a bit of work to be done just to make sure we're going down the right lines with, with publicly accessible data. But I'm very interested in Neil's thoughts on this. Yeah, I have I, enormously ambivalent um, reactions for a whole number of reasons. I'll start personal and I'll get big picture. Per, I, so I, I, I'm a bicycle racer. But, the, but recently during those, those Quebec uh, fires, we had a race canceled and I was kind of annoyed. Um, you know, but so obviously racing a bicycle outdoors involves fairly heavy breathing. Um, um, I also happen to have hypertension, which is extra annoying because I have like none of the obvious risk factors other than being 60 years old. But so perhaps I had reason to be concerned about about stopping that uh, that, that that specific race. Um, and so it affects people individually rather quickly. The reason uh, on the one hand, getting people personally invested and giving them information if it is accessible uh, that that will affect their uh, their their daily decisions and as you say give them agency is commendable um, but on the other hand there's a tremendous risk that that is offloading responsibility I, i'm also old enough to remember what we call the crying indian um, which was what it sounds like was a Native American in an advertisement about pollution uh, and telling people not to litter and having these these white folks in a large Pontiac drive by and dump things into a national park and and a tear trickled down. That was an ad generated by the United States States Plastic Council. This is no joke uh, in order to I mean, as an advertisement strategy to say the problem wasn't the plastic bottles, it wasn't the things that were being chucked out of the car. The problem was ignorant tourists who didn't take care of their garbage. I mean, so it was that was what it was designed to do. And so 
enforcing agency, dumping agency from those who are fundamentally responsible onto individuals who are not fundamentally responsible is a is a is a fraught question for me. Um, providing agency that actually has an so so we are working uh, in my university and within Pittsburgh uh, in disadvantaged communities where we, we we're, we're working to combine uh, at the uh, importantly with the guidance of people in the community. Um, so, so, so step one, listen to what people need and don't decide what they need because I am an, a scientist and of course I know. Uh, but so, so we, we are working to provide low cost sensors and data so people can respond and, and get more access to that information. Um, but what we heard very quickly was, I, I don't need the number. I don't need to know. What I need is a filter. Right. I need, and, and even if you, if, if, if it seems you say, okay, you can go down to the local store and buy a HEPA filter and put a fan in front of it and make a, a, a filter, it works. It still costs 50 pounds, 50 bucks to do that. And that's not necessarily easy or accessible. So simply providing that uh, ability to filter air to people uh, is seen as more significant than getting numbers out to people. But I don't know, Suzanne, if I bounce it back to you. Yeah, I think it's, it's really interesting because we've we've done some work with with um, communities. So mosques, for example, in a very deprived area of the West Midlands, um, groups that typically wouldn't be engaging with environmental issues and, and similar themes have emerged that it's it's not the numbers as such, but it's just the awareness that air pollution is an issue and it does change it does change by time of day and it's different between different locations as well so i think that is is very valuable in its own right but at the same time we've also had um public participants who've gone out with sensors etc and mobile monitoring who've actually said they're almost disappointed because they feel the numbers don't reflect the air quality issues that they thought exist and i think there's this whole interesting area about perception of air pollution and the way in which people interact with their places and other environmental insults such as noise for example we found that people were more likely to think an area was very polluted if it was very noisy and some limited awareness of non-traffic sources of pollution a lot of people don't make this connection with activities like domestic wood burning um, industry agriculture and i think you know there are ways in which data feeds could be used to generate that awareness and that understanding but i would wholeheartedly agree that this issue about potentially sort of shifting the problem to the individual is risky and we know from a public health perspective the best and most effective interventions happen through national legislation and at a national level and we've seen that for example with the ban on smoking public places um, going back to seatbelt legislation and the first clean air act in the uk so i'd be very worried if we used it as a sort of policy mechanism of provision of data and expect people to manage their own air pollutant exposure through that route okay well that that brings me nicely on to my final question uh for the episode so with all of that in mind like which city uh, would you say, for you, Suzanne, and for you, Neil, uh, the UK and US respectively, which city would you say has like the best air quality and why? Like, 
what can we actually learn from them? Don't say somewhere like the Lake District where no one goes. Like, give me, give me something, please. <laughs> as a UK, since it started out as a UK question, I'm going to punt to Suzanne to start, uh, and then <laughs> Suzanne, right now you are you look so like you look like whichever city yeah. you say, like you're going to lose funding from a, an institution in I, that yeah. city. Uh, yeah, I mean, I, I champion actions across the UK. And um, as, as a sort of sideline to that, we work with our regional champions. So we actually see really different air quality challenges depending where you go in the UK. So, for example, if you go to Wales, you have different air quality challenges than you go to Northern Ireland, Scotland and England. The big challenge is, is London. And if you look at particulate concentrations across the southeast, that's where you've got that major challenge from, from particles. And most of that, or, or a large proportion of that, is, is transboundary. If we look at, at cities and the actions they're taking, and I highlight the actions that they're taking, we are beginning to see health-based metrics being incorporated into interventions. And I would flag there, working with the West Midlands Combined Authority, who've been very, very forward thinking in developing their air quality actions such that it spans a whole range of different areas. So industry, agriculture, transport. We're yet to really see how that plays out in terms of air quality impacts, but that's the type of integrated policy making that we, we advocate for. Sometimes it's, so if you ask where's the best air quality, there's an element of luck there. Um, and it's often places that are uh, that, that are downwind of very clean air. And in fact, if you go to the Pacific North, Northwest and, and Seattle and Portland, Oregon, um, you'll find they have some of the best air quality. Uh, they also, it rains so much that it cleans the air, um, which is no joke. But in terms of making the best strides, uh, I, I wanted to emphasize what Suzanne was talking about, which is the infrastructure and, and thinking holistically about how um, how people are living and the access they have to the tools that will help them um, have better air quality. Um, and fundamentally, that's going to mean the infrastructure to avoid um, excessive uh, transport and to avoid living to, next to very polluted roadways, but, the, but then also to non-traffic sources. Uh, and so that is actually true in, in places like, uh, in, to pick on Portland, Oregon as an example. Uh, but I'll, I'll uh, uplift the, the areas that have done an excellent job in providing the infrastructure that lets people live close to where they need to be. Um, and so it doesn't require long, uh, you know, driving for hours and, and all of the emissions from traffic associated with that. Um, and so that the cities of the Pacific Northwest and the U.S. have done an especially good job with that. Thanks for joining us for this episode of Brought to You by Chemistry with me, Dr. Alex Lathbridge. Join us next time where we'll be finding out about indoor air quality. Because you can't escape air by going inside. That's not how air works. See you next time. Bye for now. Bye.